The Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance. You can find them at itlcoaching.com. ITL Coaching and Performance exists to build a community of athletes set on reaching goals and serving the community. They have a passion for helping people achieve their goals and dreams. ITL coaches are real people with phones, emails, and a desire to spend time with you during your training. They are vested in ITL athletes. ITL takes a communal approach to your coaching, so there's always somebody available to answer your questions and to help you adjust your training schedule. An ITL coach will be glad to meet with you to chat about your goals and find the best plan to help you meet those goals. Again, the ITL Coaching and Performance website is itlcoaching.com. The Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is also brought to you by Blue Pineapple Travel. You can find them at bluepineappletravel.com. Blue Pineapple Travel are experienced travel agents who help you design the perfect trip. They are all well-traveled and knowledgeable, and they will be your advocates from start to finish. The agents at Blue Pineapple Travel love to help people plan their travel. Their goal is to match you with the trip that you want. Whether you're looking for relaxation or adventure, traveling solo or with a group inside the United States or outside the United States, they are there to match you to the trip for you. Blue Pineapple Travel will help you curate all the travel information out there to create the exact vacation that you want. Again, their website is bluepineappletravel.com. And finally, the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast is brought to you by SlayerX, www.slayerx.com. SlayerX is a sports nutrition company that makes products for athletes, team sports, and anyone that trains or works outdoors. SlayerX was founded by an endurance athlete and University of Georgia food scientist who was unhappy with the choices he was offered on course in long course triathlons. He started making his own mixes and now you can enjoy those same mixes. SlayerX offers differing levels of electrolytes in their hydration products and you can get them with or without calories. You can either take their online test at SlayerX.com or you can be tested in their laboratory to determine the exact amount of liquid and electrolytes that you need to be consuming while racing. In addition to hydration products, SlayerX offers fueling products like their product Diesel, which is available with or without the optimum level of caffeine that is scientifically proven to legal enhance performance while limiting GI upset and diuretic impact. If you're looking for alternative gel, try SlayerX's new Spark Plug, a Pop Rocks-like powder that combines the same electrolytes that are in their other products, encapsulated caffeine, and quickly absorbed carbohydrates. It comes in a plastic tube so it can be carried while running and it will work to enhance and fuel your alertness, general happiness, and performance. Remember, tell them that the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast sent you by using the coupon code PLEASANT2019 at checkout on the website and you'll get 10% off anything that you purchase there. That's SlayerX.com, PLEASANT2019. Test, don't guess with SlayerX. Thanks to all of our sponsors for helping us to bring you the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITO Coaching and Performance, Blue Pineapple Travel, and Slayerx. This is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach in Atlanta, Georgia. I almost said here in Atlanta, Georgia, out of habit, but I am not here in Atlanta, Georgia. I am here in Los Angeles, California, and it is 5.48 a.m., about an hour and seven minutes before I start the LA Marathon. Um, I wanted to bring you a race report podcast here. Uh, of course, wanted to talk to you beforehand with all the various things that went into getting ready for the race and the fairly unique odyssey that we took to get to the starting line here. Um, and then I'll circle back around with when the race is over. This is definitely the closest that we've ever done a race report podcast, though, in terms of recording beforehand never recorded literally as i'm sitting in the area waiting for the start <laughs> i'm uh, i'm actually sitting in a parking lot here you can probably hear some background noise people milling around buses passing by all that sort of thing i'm trying not to talk super loud because i don't want to be that guy who's seated in the middle of a crowd of twenty five thousand people uh recording a podcast but i am that guy um <laughs> uh i am excited about this race i'm looking forward to it i'm a little bit nervous about it um but uh, I am, I am, uh, think it's going to be a great experience. Um, so as anybody who listens to the podcast knows, I was actually originally slated to do the Tokyo Marathon on March 1st. Um, and we were looking forward to that. My family planned this big epic trip to, to Tokyo. Uh, I was going to run the race and then we were going to spend another week in Tokyo and its environs with my sons and with my wife. Um, and we were all super excited about that and, and really looking forward to it. Then on Sunday, February 16th, two weeks before the race, um, I saw a post in a Facebook group for the Tokyo Marathon that I was a part of that basically said, 
um, well, it was a blog post. It was a sharing of a blog post from Japan Running News. Um, and Japan Running News is a really good blog that is written by this guy whose name I should know, but I can't ever remember it. Uh, he's an American. He lives in Japan. He actually has been Yuki Kawauchi's agent on a couple of different occasions. Um, but he's deeply immersed in the running scene there um, and, and writes about it for his blog. Um, and it's a very unique running culture there. Um, and so to, to read from time to time the things he has to say about the various races he goes to and stuff like that is always interesting. But anyway, he shared an article, he, and he wrote about an article that the Tokyo Marathon Foundation, who's in charge of the Tokyo Marathon, was considering canceling the race because of coronavirus. Now, they had already said that anybody who uh, was coming from China or had traveled to China over the course of the preceding couple of weeks um, was not really welcome at the race. And then they modified that slightly and said, okay, we'll let you defer without any money being paid. So please, please defer to next year if you're coming from China. And that was about 3,000 Chinese nationals, um, plus anybody who had traveled internationally to China during that time. Um, And so there have been rumors circulating that they might be canceling it, but I just kind of wrote that off as a bunch of people being paranoid. Um, turns out I was wrong. Um, uh, the guy from Japan Running News followed that up uh, that up with a, with a tweet that actually said that he thought that they were laying the groundwork for canceling the race the next day. Um, I was pretty shocked. Um, like I said, even though there had been rumors circulating about it, I, I really didn't think it was going to happen, but it did. Um, and I woke up the next morning at 6 a.m., very much on my mind, rolled over, knew that a full day had already gone by in Japan, immediately checked my news uh, and found that it had indeed been canceled. Um, over the course of the next couple of days, they let everybody know that, that we would be able to defer to next year, to 2021. Um, and so we immediately began saying, okay, we're definitely going that back next year. We're definitely going in 2021. Um, but the focus for me, as it was for everybody, immediately became, okay, so what are we going to do now? Are we still going to go to Japan and have our, our epic trip there? Um, am I going to do another race? Um, what's it going to be? Um, and initially, we said, okay, let's still consider going to Japan. Um, because we couldn't really get any flight refunds because Delta and other airlines won't refund you just because your race is canceled um, without a travel advisor or anything like that. Um, And we had money in hotels, we had money in tours and all that sort of thing. After a few days, um, things seemed to be getting a little bit worse in Japan, or at least the fear was spreading more widely um, in and around Japan, such that a travel advisory was issued, um, and Delta did offer us a refund. Um, Our tours refunded a lot of money to us, (coughs) excuse me, and um, we ended up um, not being out a whole lot of money for hotels, and so um, we then said, all right, well, a race and a trip. We have to replace the race. We have to replace the trip. We knew that Los Angeles was only a week later in, on March 8th. Los Angeles had actually just sold out only a couple days prior on Valentine's Day on February 14th. Um, but they had also, on February 17th, the day after or the day of the cancellation, had just released some special charity slot, slots that were a little bit more expensive. Um, and we said, all right, well, I've always wanted to do LA. It's been on my bucket list. It's the fifth largest race in the United States, uh, about 25,000 people. Um, This is a pretty good opportunity to do it. Um, And we had been planning to pass through LA on the way to Tokyo and back anyway. And so we just basically said, well, let's just cancel the Tokyo leg of the trip um, and just spend a little bit more time in LA instead. And so we went down to San Diego the first couple of days we were here, um, spent some time in some resorts, um, and then uh, came up to Anaheim and have spent the last couple of days in Disneyland. Um, I'm here by myself at the starting line because there's been a little bit of an illness going through my family over the course of the past week or so. Um, lots of coughing. You heard me cough here just a second ago. No, it's not coronavirus because I know that that's already something that, that a couple of people have joked with me about. Um, but um, it's just a little bit of a lung infection. Um, I was feeling really bad on Friday. Uh, started feeling a little bit better uh, throughout the day on Friday. Felt a lot better yesterday. And I feel pretty normal now, actually. And so I'm eager to see how this race is going to go. I, I purposely stayed away from any sort of antibiotics or anything like that um, uh, over the course of last week, even though I, I was hurting pretty bad there uh, on a couple of occasions and was coughing uh, a pretty ugly and pretty painful cough. But um, really right now I'm kind of wondering, um, is this going to be a repeat of the uh, of the Jekyll Island Marathon or Half Marathon, which was seven weeks ago now. It was supposed to be my tune-up race, but it was seven weeks ago. Um, that didn't go very well because the week before I was sick 
Or is it going to be more like the workout I did one week later with Lori Knowles and Morgan Van Gorder, which was probably one of the best races our best workouts I've ever done. Uh, it was a three by six mile workout that I really just kind of knocked out um, at faster than goal marathon pace. And so I think I'm fit. I know I'm fit, um, but we'll just kind of see whether my, my lungs and my legs have it today. <coughs> like I said, you hear me coughing a few times here. They actually did, uh, the LA Marathon, they weren't defiant about not canceling here amidst all the stuff around coronavirus. Um, but they did make it pretty clear that they weren't going to cancel. They were going to take some precautions. They've advised everybody to fist bump and not high-five the fans. Um, and they even at one point <coughs> they even at one point put out something that said, uh, try and maintain six feet of distance between you and all your competitors. Again, it's 25,000 people. Popular Mechanics actually put out an article about it uh, that said that here's what it would look like if everybody in the LA Marathon tried to keep six feet between one another. Um, And among other things, they found that the starting corrals um, would have to be about 3.7 miles long. Um, I'm sitting on the edge of the starting corrals here, and I can tell you they're not uh, 3.7 miles long. I should also say here, I... um, I got that special charity slot at the end, but um, big shout out to the LA Marathon organizers that uh, I sort of was that guy um, that writes the emails and sort of brags about being a good runner and all that sort of thing in order to try and get a, a good number in the front um, because you were supposed to have submitted your times for a seated number by November 14th of last year. Um, and needless to say, on November 14th of last year, I was planning to do the Tokyo Marathon. Um, and so I wrote them multiple emails over the course of a few days. Um, and rather than getting annoyed by it, or at least not responding in an annoyed way, I'm sure they probably did annoy them, um, they ended up issuing me a pretty low number, a nice uh, sub-elite number. Um, and so I am going to be able to start up at the very front, um, and that's something I, I appreciate they're doing, because uh, that's not something that they had to do. Um, so, But I'll be checking back in with you in about five hours, I suppose, to, to let you know how it is that this race went. <coughs> Let's hope this cough that you hear is... Uh, gone away um or maybe i'll be coughing more i guess we'll see but uh one way or another let's hope it doesn't actually hamper the race um thanks for listening let's see how this goes okay folks the la marathon is over and i am walking through the parking lot at dodger stadium i just had to take a ride share from the finish line at santa monica pier it's a point-to-point course um, and come back to Dodger Stadium and have a, a kind of a long walk through the parking lot here, which I figured was a perfect opportunity for me to make a couple of quick reflections here at the end. Um, I'll come back in later on and, and, and do bigger, deeper, more profound reflections, but just some, some quick takes here after my race. Um, I ran not quite as fast as I wanted to. Um, I was running pretty well. Um, until about mile 16 uh, there in Beverly Hills right about the time we turned on Rodeo Drive and then went down Wilshire Boulevard um, and uh, which is super cool by the way <laughs> um, I, I really started to struggle a little bit one of my um, hamstrings my right hamstring has been bothering me a little bit um, I think I kind of overcooked it uh, in training and so it started to, to hurt a little bit and, and it started to get to where it was about to start cramping. So I had to back off in order to kind of keep it from cramping, which was super frustrating because I was with a couple of people that I was enjoying running with. And, and then as soon as I kind of started backing that off, it seems like everything kind of really started falling apart a little bit. Um, and I don't know if it's a relationship. I don't know if like my, my hamstring would have not started hurting that I would have just kind of fallen apart anyway. Um, but one way or another, um, I spent the last eight to 10 miles of the race really, really struggling. Um, and, uh, I fell off the pace a lot, never completely fell apart. Um, ended up dropping about a minute off my pace, which is, um, not devastating. Um, you know, not two minutes, three minutes, five minutes off my pace. Um, but about a minute per mile off my pace and, and ended up missing my goal by, you know, a couple of minutes, um, which is too bad. But given the fact that I was fighting off sickness all week long, I kind of feel like this was, um, kind of inevitable. Um, <laughs> my, uh, my body just really didn't have it. I don't think it didn't have quite enough to, for, to take me through an entire marathon. I think if I would have been a little bit more conservative at the start, uh, I might have been able to, to hang on a little bit better. Um, but I tell you, I was more conservative than everybody else at the start. Uh, people just go tearing out in this race. I was kind of shocked by it as a matter of fact. Um, but yeah, people started really, really fast. 
Um, I will say two other kind of quick takes here before I come back later on. Uh, first quick take is that this definitely gets the stamp of approval in terms of this is the LA Marathon. Um, I've said before on this podcast on several occasions that for a race to really be considered a good race by me, it needs to live up to its name. Like the New York City Marathon needs to be a marathon in New York City, and it is. I mean, you feel that you're in New York City in every way. Um, this definitely felt like that. Um, you know, probably the coolest moment of the race, I think, that was somewhere maybe around mile eight or nine, um, somewhere just before 10, I want to say, um, I looked up and I could see the Hollywood sign, um, up in the Hollywood Hills. Uh, and I was like, Oh, that's cool. I got a mental note of that. What street am I on? And I look over and I'm on sunset Boulevard. Um, and you know, that's obviously not an experience I'm going to have in any other place. Um, but we ran in front of man's Chinese theater. We ran, um, in front of all sorts of kind of iconic LA things. And, and it felt like, like Los Angeles throughout. And, that was really cool. Um, even when things kind of started going bad, it still felt like Los Angeles. Unfortunately, the crowd support in the first part of the race wasn't, there wasn't as much of it. Um, and so when I was feeling good, I didn't have a whole lot of crowd support. Um, and then when I started feeling bad, there was a bunch of crowd support and I was like, I mean, maybe that's kind of the way it should be. Um, but, but you know, people were cheering for me. You look great. You're doing well. When I knew I didn't look great. I knew I wasn't doing well at that point, but um, but anyway, um, so there, there was a lot, particularly the finish, as a matter of fact, there was a ton of people at the finish down in Santa Monica at the pier, um, and actually saw a guy, Adrian Valdivieso, that I know from Los Angeles, um, and, uh, he high-fived me, he's like, way to go, George, I was like, oh, struggling, man, um, um, but I, I really just wanted to quit, um, from about mile 18 or 19 forward, um, and I held it together and didn't quit and kept running the best I could, even though it was not as fast as I wanted it to be. Um, and even though the time wasn't what I wanted it to be, I'm really proud of the fact that I didn't quit and I'm really proud of that effort. Um, the other kind of quick take that I will say is that, uh, the hills in like four and five, there's a, there's a hill that I saw in four and five and I knew that they were tough. That was a hard hill. Um, I have this bad habit of actually saying that that hills must not be all that hard because I live in a hilly area and I look at a, 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 a map of a course and it'll have a big hill on it and be like, oh, it's probably not all that bad. Uh, nothing you know worse than the hills in Atlanta. And I'm always wrong about that. Um, and uh, I was wrong about that on this occasion as well. The hill at mile four, uh, around mile four in mile five is significant um is gigantic and of course you get up to the top and the disney theater is up there and so it's kind of this you know, really good backdrop and so they have all these photographers up there taking pictures there's a ton of photographers by the way which is pretty cool um which also feels kind of like la photographers everywhere right um but um but all these photographers up there taking pictures at the top of that hill um, and so I am looking forward to seeing what the pictures turn out to, to be. Um, you can hear a helicopter going overhead right now. There's a lot of helicopter coverage of the race too, which also feels like a Los Angeles thing. So um, anyway, like I said, more to come in a little while um, once I have time to sit down and process it a little bit. It always takes me a little while to process a race, particularly if the race doesn't go quite as well as I had hoped it would go. Um, but um, I look forward to doing that. Um, be back soon. Okay, everybody, I am back in the most pleasant exhaustion podcast studio, by which I mean my house. I'm 3,000 miles from the last place I was recording as I was walking across the Dodger Stadium parking lot back to my car immediately following the race very slowly. I'm still moving slowly, even though it's been more than two days. It's now Tuesday night, and uh, I have had a little bit more time to process, to think about it, what went right, what went wrong, what I liked, what I didn't like, all that sort of thing. I realized when I went back and I listened to the two pieces that I recorded already, the two short pieces, the one I did in the parking lot immediately prior to the race and the one that I did as I was walking across the parking lot back to my car, um, that I didn't really talk about even more of the, the stuff that was kind of going on around the race itself. I didn't talk about the expo, for example, uh, which was kind of a trip, actually. It was very Los Angeles, had a bunch of bright, shiny colors and a really hitting DJ that was super cool and made me feel as if I should not be in the same room with her and um, all sorts of interesting things like that um, and had 
two different CBD distilleries, which at one time might be kind of out on the edge, but I don't I don't suppose it is anymore. There was actually a, a, a platinum sponsor of the race was a, a CBD uh, company. Um, they had a lot of like Hawaiian vegetables, supplements, and things like that. Um, they had two different places where you could get a pre-race IV. Um, and I was struck by that because that's against WADA rules uh, to get just an IV because you feel like you can get an IV um, and not for some sort of medically prescribed reason. Um, and so I was surprised that they had that and people were lined up actually doing it there at the uh, at the, the, the expo. Um, but I uh, spent about an hour there, walked around a little bit, brought myself a fresh pair of socks and a pint glass. Um, it is my practice to try not to buy too much stuff prior to the race um, because I feel like that jinxes it a little bit. I learned that lesson in Chicago in 2017. I bought like everything at the expo and then I didn't run as well as I wanted to run and I was stuck with all this stuff that I didn't really want to wear because I had a negative association with it because the race didn't really go all that well. Um, and uh, I figured that I can always kind of go back and find things after the race. Um, but usually something small is what I, what I try and get. Um, got the race t-shirt, which was cool. Um, and, uh, and then just headed on back out to Disneyland where my family was staying and was already in the parks and, and, and all that sort of thing. I spent that Saturday afternoon after being in the expo, just kind of laying around, uh, writing a few athlete schedules, um, uh, picked it back up and, and went with my family to, uh, to, to dinner. Uh, but then kind of turned in early after that. Uh, the reason why I had to turn in so early is because the time change was actually on Saturday night before the race, which meant that I had lost three hours in going out there, and then I was springing forward an hour, and so I was losing an hour of sleep that way. Um, and then with a 6.55 a.m. start, um, and with 27,000 people, I think they said it was, uh, that were all kind of converging on this one spot, I had kind of gotten nervous about traffic and and... I hadn't spent as much time really developing a how to get there, how to get to the starting line plan, uh, like I had for Tokyo and, and other races that I had more time to plan for. And so I start, started ingesting all of these nerves about um, uh, about being late for the start. Um, and so ended up only sleeping for a couple of hours and then got up at 3.30 a.m., um, and got in the car and drove to the start. Uh, now that's 3.30 after the time change, so it's really 2.30. Um, it was the earliest I've ever gotten up for, for a race, even earlier than the races I've done at Disney World, um, which are notoriously early starters, as you probably know. Um, it's a good thing I did get up early. I did get kind of turned around and lost on the way there. Um, I followed my GPS, and it took me to some closed roads. Um, I couldn't get in the stadium the way that I was trying to, and then as I tried to get back to the roads that were open, I came across other closed roads and then got on the wrong freeway and all sorts of other things like that. Now, Ian Sharman um, was is a professional runner and coach. Um, he's an ultra runner. Um, he was also at the starting line and I saw him and talked to him. He was attempting to break Michael Wardian's record for fastest marathon dressed as Elvis. Um, evidently, a lot of people at the, uh, the Los Angeles Marathon try and break the fastest marathon dressed as something. Um, and so there was a guy dressed as a leprechaun, there was a semi dressed as a taco, um, like all sorts of different things. Evidently, that's just sort of part of the, the, the culture of the marathon. And so he was using it as, as his opportunity to try and, and beat Michael Wardian's record. Um, and he was looking to run pretty fast. He was looking to run low 230s in order to do that. Um, but I, when I talked to him at the starting line, he, he I had never met him before, but he was easy to pick out because he was dressed like Elvis. And uh, I said, I introduced myself to him um, and um, told him I knew Michael Wardian. And then said, uh, I said, said, what are you looking to run today? And he immediately started telling me about the, the scary ride, the taxi ride he had trying to get to the starting line um, that included a couple of wrong turns. And then a pretty big car wreck happened basically right in front of him. Um, and, and he and his taxi driver just barely missed it. Um, and he wrote on Strava later on that he felt like it was almost certainly a fatal race, uh, crash. Um, and so I think that really rattled him. Um, and he ended up starting pretty well, but he faded by about 10 K. And then I, I noticed on Strava later on, he had actually dropped out around, around the 30 K mark. Um, but anyway, um, so I had a hard time to get into to, to, to the, the race start as well, but not nearly as hard time as he did. Um, got there, um, 
went to the bathroom, do all the things you normally do before the race. Um, really got kind of cold, uh, colder than I wanted to as I was standing around waiting for the race to start. Um, as I mentioned, they, they gave me a semi-elite number, which basically meant that I milled around right at the starting line. Um, and then maybe five minutes before the start, they just took us and they just put us in front of all the people in, in Corral A. Now, they also had in the race a pro field um, an elite field, and they actually separated those pro fields entirely from the uh, from the sub elite field, which is what I was part of, and then the corralled field, which is uh, corral A, B, C, D, and E, and then you had the open field, which was anybody who was expecting to run over five hours for the race. Um, five hours and 15 minutes, actually, I think it was, for, for the race. Um, there were 21 pro men in the race, um, and then there was about seven or eight uh, pro women that started the race. Um, and so kind of small pro fields. So they started the pro women about six minutes early. Um, and then they started the pro men literally about five seconds in front of us. They fired the gun, they ran off and then, um, they dropped their arms and we ran off after them. Um, now, like I mentioned, um, the start was really fast. Um, people really kind of went blazing out at the start and I was surprised by that. Um, I, I, had all sorts of people just rolling past me in the first couple of miles. There's this uphill through the parking lot of Dodger Stadium, and then you kind of go down some pretty steep hills there for a little while, and, and folks were starting super-duper fast. Um, I don't think I really got sucked into that. I just sort of figured that I was going to see them all later, um, and I did see many of them later and did end up passing a lot more of them fairly early on, really within the first few minutes, um, or at least the first five miles. Um, but I was surprised by how fast people actually went blasting out in this race. Um, first couple of miles, we go through the neighborhood. We immediately get into downtown um, Los Angeles. I was struck in mile three and mile four, um, just very early on, um, by two things. Number one, there's really nobody out there. Um, <laughs> there was there was almost no crowd. And honestly, I think this was in part because it was pretty early in the morning, the day after the time change, and so it was even earlier. I mean, it started at 6.55, so really it was 5.55 with the time change, right? Um, and and there just wasn't a whole lot of people out there. Um, and then number two, right as we go through um, mile, in mile three, basically, um, there was a really large homeless settlement that we went through. Um, and I was reminded of Prentice Douglas um, when I interviewed him for the podcast. Uh, a month or two ago when he was talking about how he was wrapping up his Every Streets of San Francisco run, one of the things he had been struck by, because he did most of his running, almost all of his running before sunrise, um, was that there were so many homeless people and he'd really had his eyes open to that because he was running on every street. So he wasn't just running on the nice streets and the street where there aren't any homeless people, but rather he was out seeing all of it. And so because it was still fairly early in the morning, the sun was just coming up, uh, I feel like we saw a little bit of that as well. Um, there is a homeless problem in California. Um, a lot of folks end up landing there because the weather's nice um, and, and they're not going to freeze in uh, in March in Los Angeles. Um, and so that's definitely something that, that their system is, is taxed and trying to address. But um, I, I very much saw that. Um, anyway, um, move on to, like I mentioned, that gigantic hill at mile four. Um, that I had totally underestimated. Um, we started to go up this small hill, and then we took a hard left. There were a lot of turns on this course, which surprised me. We took a hard left, and just it was like looking up the side of a mountain. Um, and I, I mentioned that in my quick takes immediately following the race. Um, and then I texted Michelle, um, uh, who of course, has done the race and talked about it on the podcast with us a couple weeks ago. Um, and she said, well, yeah, why didn't you trust me when I said that was a really big hill? Uh, and kind of got annoyed with me that I, that, that I was suggesting that, that I didn't believe her. I did believe her. Um, but as I told her and as I explained to all of you, I just tend to really underestimate how big hills are going to be in races because I feel as if I come from a hilly area. I do. This, hear me now, was a super hilly super gigantic hill. This was not, this is a hilly race for sure. There were some really steep uphills and downhills. Um, but this hill at four miles, I, I dare say it's probably the steepest hill I've ever run up in a marathon. Um, it's, it's definitely steeper than any hill I've ever, at, at New York city. It's, there's no hills in Chicago anyway. Um, it was steeper than the, the two big hills that are in, uh, uh, Philadelphia. It was even steeper than those big hills between five and seven and flying pig. Um, so it was 
literally loud enough for me to exclaim uh, out loud when we turned that corner and I laid eyes on it for the first time. So um, Michelle said, I don't understand why people don't talk about that hill more. It's so hard. And I said, I'm going to talk about it from now on. And so if you take anything from this post-race report here, take that that hill was really gigantic and and just be ready for it. Um, so uh, kind of continue running along. We crest that hill. They take pictures. I mentioned in my quick takes that there was a whole bunch of photographers out there, including up at the top uh, of that hill. There were a lot of photographers. Um, they were everywhere, all over the course. As I mentioned, that felt very California to me. Um, had a couple at the very start. Had a couple after the said several after the finish, really. Um, but in all, I actually got the pictures back yesterday, and. Take a second, when I say that there were a lot of photographers at the race, take a second and think about how many photographers or how many pictures you think were taking of, taken of me during this race. Just think about a big number of race pictures to have been taken of me. Think about it. All right, time's up. The number of pictures that was taken of me at this race was 134 photos. 134 photos I have to choose from if I want to order them from Finisher Picks. Like I said, lots and lots and lots and lots of photos. Most of them are pretty cool. Um, a lot of them had like palm trees in the background and stuff like that, which is great. Um, some of them had some some big landmarks in the background, which is super cool. A lot of them, unfortunately, were ruined by the fact that I was wearing a big Band-Aid on my knee, my right knee, because I fell on a run on Wednesday, but I'm going to talk more about that uh, towards the end of this. Um, and so, you know, what should have been these like big rippling quad muscles and, you know, looking super tough and all that sort of thing instead had, you know, Jake the Pirate Band-Aids on it um, because that's what we had. Um, and so, you know, alas, some of those pictures weren't so great. Um, I mentioned that one of my favorite parts of the race was around mile seven or eight there, um, looking up and seeing the Hollywood sign and being like, oh, that's cool. I wonder what street I'm on. And I was on Sunset Boulevard. Um, you know, definitely something that only happens in Los Angeles. Um, we passed Man's Chinese Theater, um, which is the place where, where actors and actresses have traditionally uh, made palm prints in the, in the cement. Um, and it was right before we were supposed to make a turn, right about 10 miles. Um, and it was funny because there was a photographer there. And when I got the pictures back from that spot, I was actually running in a group at that time of about four people. And all the rest of them are looking forward and looking tough and looking focused. And my head is turned 90 degrees to the right because I'm checking out Man's Chinese Theater um, because I had never seen it before and I was kind of sightseeing here. Um, and that actually kind of leads into something that... that is one of my big takeaways and one of my big reflections from this race. Um, I've sort of found over the course of the past couple of marathons that I've done, and I found this out kind of by accident, um, that a good way for me to stay out of my own head is to interact with the crowd and with the people around me. Um, and I had a hard time in this race staying out of my own head because there wasn't a lot of crowd around. I had a lot to look at, and that was cool. I had the Hollywood sign. I had Man's Chinese Theater. At one point, we were running down Hollywood Boulevard, and we ran past the theater where Hamilton was going to be opening this week, and it said on the marquee, L.A. Marathoners, outrun, outlast. And I was like, that's so cool. And I really wish that, that I would have been able at that moment to pull up, go, hit him quick, pull out fast, and chicka pow, which is you know the next line in the song. But I wasn't able to do that. Anyway, um, <laughs> but but having that interaction with other people to keep me out of my own head um, is something I kind of rely on. And not having the opportunity to do that in this race meant that I ended up spending more time in my head in the first part of the race than I wanted to. Um, and that's not good. Um, and I need to figure... I need to get another tool in my toolbox, I was telling someone this morning. I need to figure out some way to get out of my own head when I don't have the crowd there to interact with to get out of my head. Um, you know, at one point around like four, about five or six miles, I want to say, I ran past this one bar and they were playing this really hitting music. And there was one guy standing out there and I actually reached out to high five him and he didn't high five me. Thank you, coronavirus. Um, because everybody had been told not to high five the runners because we didn't want to get sick or they didn't want to get sick from us or whatever. So, um, so it just, it just wasn't happening. I mean, maybe on some other year, there's more crowd out there and maybe people were staying away because of fears about coronavirus and all that sort of thing. But um, but they weren't there one way or another, and that definitely affected me because the the thing that I normally do in order to preserve some of my mental energy for the latter stages of the race wasn't there. So 
that's one of my big takeaways. I'm going to be spending some time over the course of the next little while here trying to put another tool in my toolbox um, for dealing with mental energy and, and find some other way of preserving my mental energy for the latter stage of the race when I need to spend it that doesn't involve me relying on other people. Um, I was listening to a podcast just today, as a matter of fact, with Jacob Riley, the guy who finished second in the uh, Olympic trial, the men's Olympic trials marathon here in Atlanta um, last weekend. And he was saying um, that some runners, some marathoners are chatters. And he said that Abdi Abdi Rahim, uh, the guy who just finished his finished third in the Olympic marathon trials and qualified for his fifth Olympic team, um, he said that Abdi is a chatter. And he said that some people are chatters and Abdi is a chatter. Um, and I actually kind of took some solace from that. It's good to know that like pros at that level, some of them talk and chat. Um, and I don't know, maybe I need to own up to the fact that I'm a chatter. I've never thought that I was a chatter during a race. In fact, I've always been kind of the opposite. I've always been the guy who didn't really want to talk. He wanted to focus and you know all that sort of thing. I don't know, maybe, maybe that's, that's a tool I need to add to my toolbox. But anyway, something I'm continuing to think about here over the course of the next little while. Now, another thing kind of interesting is that that during miles six, seven, eight, around that time, around the time I saw the Hamilton sign, around the time I saw the Hollywood sign, as we're running down Sunset Boulevard and Hollywood Boulevard, and around before we saw China, Man's Chinese Theater, it felt kind of hard, and I felt the stress in my legs, but the speed felt right, which I thought was sort of an interesting mix. It definitely didn't have that easy, breezy marathon pace in the first half of the marathon feel that you kind of are looking for a lot of times, but at the same time, the rhythm felt right. Um, and I thought that that was kind of interesting at the time, and I still think it's interesting looking back on it as well. I think that that I had trained so much, and I had done these long workouts at marathon pace, that like the pace at which I wanted to run the marathon, which is basically right at six-minute pace, that pace was dialed into my legs, and neuromuscularly, I knew exactly what that pace was supposed to feel like. But it just happened that because I had been sick and because of a few other things, maybe that pace was a little bit too hard. And so maybe I went out a little bit too fast, but it didn't it might have it didn't really feel like it was too fast from a, a pace and rhythm point of view because I had dialed that pace into my legs so much, if if that makes sense. So anyway, one way or another, it, it did kind of feel fast. Now I did. I remember very well. I went to the 10 mile mark, and and the 10 mi 10th mile was basically right at the pace I wanted it to be. It was just under six minutes, and I remember I looked at the guy next to me, and I went, not finally, that one felt easy, because that 10th mile felt easy. It felt breezy, like a mile is supposed to be. And I kind of joked them. I said, Yeah, I think I've been recovering from that hill in four and five ever since. You know, for the last five miles or something like that. But that 10th mile felt like it was supposed to feel. And so I really had a lot of confidence at that point. Um, what's more, a group kind of came together. Um, I had noticed in the results of the past few years that there was a big group of people that tended to run between 2.30 and 2.40. And since that's where I tend to be, I was thinking, okay, I might get to actually run with some other people here. And so I, I this group kind of comes together. First, there was like three or four of us. And then like seven or eight guys all came together and we're all running together. And it was fun and exciting. And we're like tearing down the hill and turning these corners and stuff like that. And that's just not something I get to do all that much. And so I really was enjoying kind of running in this group. Um, right around the half marathon point, they had a charity race. Um, and the charity runners or a lot of the charity runners didn't run the full marathon and said they ran a half marathon, but they started at the half marathon mark, and then they ran to Santa Monica Pier. Um, and so they basically inserted them in the race at the half marathon point. And like I said, not a whole lot of crowd there, but we get to this gigantic group of probably 500 half marathoners that are sitting there waiting, and they're kind of like half-heartedly cheering. And I'm in this group of eight or nine guys, and I started kind of hyping them up a little bit. And these are people that are ready to roll, and of course they're motivated to cheer for stuff. And so they all kind of start cheering and going nuts and stuff. And in retrospect, that was probably my finest moment of the race, um, was, was running through with this group, hyping up this group of half marathoners. They're all cheering for us, yelling for us, telling us we look great. I felt good at that point. Everything really kind of seemed to be going well. Um, so a mile or so after that, the group starts to break up a little bit. One person sort of put in a surge, and everybody in the group had to decide whether they wanted to run with him or whether they wanted to hang back. Or, and who they wanted to run with, all that sort of thing. So it just kind of blew the group apart, which was too bad. Um, and then right there around 16 miles, right there uh, just past the just past the, the 25K mark, um, that's kind of when things started to, to, to kind of go south on me a little bit. Um, at that point, 
Um, I was, I had been running 557 pace was my average at that point. So I was feeling pretty good about it. I was in 15th place. Um, they separate, like I said, the open, the elite or the, the elite men, the pro men from everybody else. Um, and so most of the pro men were obviously in front of me, but, um, of the open group, I was in 15th place and I was, I was psyched about that. I was running what I wanted to be running. And it was right at that moment that this hamstring, my right hamstring, which is not something I've had a problem with, um, it just really kind of started to, to, to tighten a little bit and just barely started to cramp. And it was this one little line along my hamstring, which I've, I felt when stretching and stuff, and I've, I've kind of tried to stay away from. Um, and it just really started to bother me. And I knew that if I didn't back off, it was going to completely seize. Um, and it was frustrating because I, I was running with this you know small smaller group at this point. It was like two or three other guys. But I had to go ahead and back off because... I knew that if I kept on running at the speed at which I was running, it was going to, to cramp entirely and I was going to be in a really bad place. And so I had to back off about 15 to 20 seconds a mile and basically let these guys go. Um, and it was super frustrating because I felt like I could continue to run at that higher level. I felt like I was fit enough, I was strong enough, I was feeling good enough, I could have kept on pushing at the faster pace. Um, but in order to keep that hamstring from, from completely seizing, I had to go in and, and, and get off, um, get off that pace. Um, I literally was running down Rodeo drive when that happened. <laughs> um, there is, I was in Beverly Hills. Um, I was joking later on that, that I got on the struggle bus in, in, in Beverly Hills. Um, and I feel like that sounds a lot better than I started struggling, uh, after the 15 K mark or the 15 mile mark, the 16 mile mark, the 25 K mark. One of my friends and training partners even suggested that should be the name of my autobiography one day, you know, getting on the struggle bus and in Beverly Hills or something like that. Um, but yeah, by the time we literally turned off Rodeo Drive on the Wilshire Boulevard, um, I uh, I was I was pretty much in kind of hold it together survival mode, um, and that wasn't a very long time. Um, and for whatever reason, things just kind of got worse and worse after that. My legs in particular just kind of continued to get worse and worse. My system felt okay. Like my lungs were fine. My my heart rate, even though I don't look at my heart rate when I'm racing, it was it was okay. It wasn't skyrocketing anything. That I didn't feel too hot. I didn't feel dehydrated. Um, my legs just kind of kept on getting worse and worse and worse. So um, people started passing me, uh, catching me and passing me, but just by the nature of the race, um, they're it wasn't like when things started going bad in Chicago and people just started passing me in droves. Um, you know, in the next 5K, like three or four people passed me and like three or four people in the next 5K after that, a couple more people in the next 5K after that. Um, ultimately, I finished 30th. And so, you know, 15 people passed me in the last 17K of the race. So 15 people over the course of 10 miles passing you, that's not a great thing. But they're not, they weren't just rolling past me. You know, I was, I was basically getting caught by somebody you know, every few minutes. Um, um, and then if two people came by me, there might be, you know, a period of time of 10 minutes or so when, when nobody would pass me. And so, um, so I just kind of struggled on. Um, I eventually kind of got to that place where I had lost about 30 seconds or so off of my pace and close to a minute at some point off my pace. And I knew I was kind of in survival mode. Um, and I was just trying to get on through it. And I really, really, really wanted to stop. Um, I really wanted to kind of pack it in and at it, it, the, it, the very least to start shuffling as opposed to running as fast as I could on my severely beaten up legs and with my hamstring that, that kept threatening to, to, to seize, I, I at least wanted just to back down to a shuffle rather than continuing to try and run as fast as I could, even though as fast as I could isn't as fast as I wanted to be running at that point. Um, I also, I wanted to, to start walking through the aid stations. I, I was kind of looking for excuses to back off. Um, and I didn't let myself ultimately do either one of those things. I didn't let myself back off of the pace to something that was easily manageable. And I didn't let myself walk through any of the aid stations or really even walk at all. I, I sort of maintained the drive to, to run as best as I could possibly run over the course of that last 10 miles. Um, I was really fixated on the 24 mile mark um, because I knew that that 
24 miles after 24 miles it was downhill for the last couple of miles um and even though i knew my severely beaten up quads would probably hurt in those last two miles as i ran down them at least i thought i could gather up you know some momentum and kind of get things going down the hill a little bit um and and so i was really really fixated on that ultimately that 24 mile mark did come i was able to gather back a little bit of speed um and i got back to where I was only about 15 seconds slower. I was running about 6.15 pace um, than what my overall goal pace had been. Um, I would have run, I think, 30 to 40 seconds per mile faster than that had I been having a good race uh, in each of those miles, but I simply didn't have it at that point. Um, took the turn onto Ocean Avenue. Um, the finish, and this is something I, I didn't see in any other race report as well, the finish is visible from a really long way away. <laughs> I mean, you're there right next to the ocean, and you can literally see the finish from about a half a mile away. And and no sooner had I looked up and seen the finish than I run past them, and they go, what quarter mile to go? And I was like, okay, I only got a quarter mile to go. But I knew it was more than a quarter mile because I was nowhere near the 26-mile mark yet. Um, and so, so you know, running for what seemed like forever there. Uh, and the crowd was pretty thick there on Ocean Avenue. That's where I saw the guy from California, Adrian, that I know. And he gave me a high five. He said, way to go, George. And I was like, I'm struggling, man. But but I, it was it was good to see his friendly face because I had been looking for him a lot, actually, over the course of that last 10 miles, knowing that he was going to be out there somewhere. Um, and I was just grasping at straws, trying to do anything I could uh, do to keep myself going over the course of that last 10 miles. Um, and then I finished. Um, finished in 242.48. Um, and generally speaking, I always say that my goal in a marathon uh, at this stage in my life and this stage in my career is to run anywhere from about 237 to about 243 or 235 to about 243. Uh, the reason for that is that 235 is about 555 pace and 243 is 615 pace. And I kind of feel like that range, that 20-second range there, is about what marathon pace is for me right now at age 45 um, in in my life. Um, and, of course, it can vary based on courses and circumstances and weather and all that sort of thing. And so I try to always give myself a range. Based on the workouts I had done, based on the fitness that I had, I really felt as if I was ready to run at the fast end of that range. I really felt as if I, w- I was ready to run 235. And, and I think that the first... 25 kilometers made me only more convinced that I, I probably could have run that fast, but you know, things just kind of started to fall apart there in Beverly Hills, and and I ended up running 242. So initially, I was pretty frustrated by that. Um, as I walked through the the, the finish area, um, I you know, people were congratulating me, oh great job, congratulations, and and I kind of you know was sort of cranky about it, just. Um, because I didn't feel like I'd run, you know, as well as I could have, and, and I felt like my time was seven minutes slower than it was than, than it was going to be, and just I, I really wanted to have run faster, and felt like I was on a good race, and just felt like I didn't quite pull it off that day. Um, and and as time went on, um, I I got a little bit more perspective and started feeling a lot better about it. I think that that when I first crossed the finish line between my legs being so beaten up and frankly having spent an hour in a really negative headspace, um, it's hard to cross the finish line feeling really, really good and feeling positive and uplifted um, when you cross that finish line. It's not quite the most pleasant exhaustion, honestly, um, if I could say it that way. But um, after you know pretty soon after that I started to get a little bit more perspective and started feeling a lot better about myself um, you know the first few people that I sent texts to um, as soon as I got my phone back as soon as I got my bag out of gear check um, I said something about how I'm not happy with the race um, and and I realized pretty soon that that wasn't really accurate um, that I was happy with the race um, it just I was happy with it for reasons that that I hadn't necessarily expected to be happy with it for I I, I wanted it to be a little bit faster yeah but in the end, I was really, really proud of the effort that I put in over the course of that last 10 miles to keep from from backing off, to keep from stopping. Um, pretty soon after that, I found that I had actually won my age group. Um, I was first in the 45 to 49 age group. Um, they didn't have a master's division, but I actually went and looked, and there was two 42-year-olds that beat me. <laughs> um, one of them ran 237, one of them ran 238. Um, and then so I was the, the third guy over the age of, of 40 
um, to, to actually finish. Um, like I said, they didn't get Masters awards, so it's not like I'm on the, on the Masters podium, but if they had, I would have been third in the Masters. And um, But as it was, I won my age group. And so I, I, I can't complain about that. I'm, I'm happy about that. Um, once the, the, the results were complete, I look back, and I feel like had I reduced my, my running to a shuffle there in the last 10 miles, and if I would have stopped at, at water stations and all that sort of thing, I could have easily added 10 to 15 minutes to my finish time um, if I would have just packed it in and said, you know what, today's not my day, forget it. I'm doing Boston in six weeks, and that's going to be my focus now. Um, I think I really could have made that happen. Um, and if I would have done that, I would have finished sixth, seventh, eighth in my age group. Um, and in fact, in the sixth largest, fifth largest marathon in the United States, I, I won my age group. And I think that's that's damn cool. Um, and so I'm actually proud of that as it turns out. And I think that's actually, for me personally, an important lesson for me that, that even if the race doesn't turn out exactly what you wanted it to, there are aspects of the race that you can take a great deal of pride in. Um, and that's kind of where I am right now. Um, nonetheless, two more quick things I'll say, um, because the post here has gotten kind of long, but, um, one, I thought it was a great race. I think it was a well-run race. I think it was well-managed. I think the course was was brilliant. Uh, I thought it was super neat. Wish there had been more people out there. Maybe there weren't people out there because it was so early. Maybe there weren't people out there because, you know, people are scared of the coronavirus. I'm not sure. Um, there was a lot of people in the back half of the race, um, but but not so many in the front half of the race. Um, nonetheless, the course was super cool, and more than anything, the course was super Los Angeles, um, and, and that's always my number one criteria, as you know, for a, a good course, but... Um, the one complaint I did have is that I got to the finish line and I had to walk a long, long, long way before I could sit down. I mean, a really long way. Um, I literally walked past the medical and I, and I was hurt. My legs were just trash destroyed. I'm going to talk more about that here in just a minute, but my legs were just completely non-functional at that point. And so I'm barely moving and just kind of trying to walk through all the volunteers and picking up the various things and da da da, and then I I passed by some medical people, and just like happened in the New York City Marathon four years ago, the medical people said, "Sir, are you doing okay?" And and I said, I said, "Yeah, I'm fine. I'm okay." I said, "My legs just really hurt, and I'm kind of old and beaten up." Um, and they said, "Do you need anything?" They said, "Do you, do you want any ice? Do you, do you need any uh, need any medical care?" And I was like, "No, no, it's okay." And they said, "Do you want to sit down?" And I went, "Yeah, actually." I will take a sit down. And so the first place that I was capable of sitting down was a good 200 yards past the finish, past all the drinks, past everything else in a medical station. Um, and that was the first place where there was a chair. They didn't even have a curb for you to sit down on. If I wanted to sit down, I literally would have had to sit down like in the middle of the ground, in the middle of the floor. And I'm sure that that would have been a real problem had I been farther back in the, in the, in the crowd. Um, so that was a complaint. Um, I stood up, they gave me a bottle of water, they checked my name, all that sort of thing. They asked me to make sure I really didn't need anything else. They said, asked me what I was going to be doing to recover, and I said, I'm going to Disneyland. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, ride Guardians of the Galaxy and the Incredicoaster. We'll see how that goes, how that makes my legs feel the next day. But anyway, um, they uh, checked me out, saw that I was okay, and then sent me on my way. Um, and so I walk about another hundred yards and then there's massage therapists, um, as there often are at large races. And they're, they're like, sir, do you want to come in and get a massage? And I kind of look over and there are people laying on massage tables. I said, yes, I will. And I didn't do it because I thought the massage was going to be so incredibly helpful at flushing things out of my muscles, but because it was going to give me the opportunity once again to get off my feet. And that was the only opportunity I had to get off my feet. And at this point, I'd also picked up my bag from gear check, and so I'm carrying that around. I had the blanket on me, everything else, and there's still no place to sit down. Um, and so I go and lay down on this table um, and had a, a very nice massage therapist work on me for a little while and kind of move my body through through a, a little bit more, some ranges of motion, which, which might have helped. Um, but more than anything, I just got to sit down. Um, came out didn't have any change tents or anything like that. So I had to, you know, go ahead and just stand there and put my clothing on in front of everybody. I didn't, uh, ended up not stripping off the sweaty clothing, just kind of put all the, uh, the dry clothing on over the top of it. And then had to walk about, um, four or five more blocks, uh, a pretty good way, more, well over a quarter mile to get to the place where I could hail, uh, an Uber to take me back to the starting line. Um, and that was, that was a lot of walking to do after a race that had not gone very well. And so my one complaint about the race was the way that the finish area was was laid out was um, not great. Um, it was just a lot of walking. 
um, and and everything was kind of spread out. I looked at the map later on, and it turns out that, like the the finished party, I should have taken a hard left and walked like four more blocks out of the finished area, and and I didn't do that, and there wasn't really anybody directing us to that, and so um, that's my one big complaint. Um, and had I run really well, I might or had I been feeling really good at the finish line, um, I might not be feeling that way about it. <laughs> um, but given the fact that I was so beaten up and I was so tired and I was not in a great mental place, um, that was something that, that that I was a little bit upset about. Other than that, nothing but great things to say about the the Los Angeles Marathon. The last thing I'll mention is is kind of thinking about what happened, um, and so. Got on that struggle bus in Beverly Hills there on Rodeo Drive. I mean, what actually happened there? Um, and and I'm sort of left with, with three possibilities. The first possibility um, is, of course, related to the fact that I've been sick and fighting off some sort of sickness for about a week. Um, I have a training partner, Drew, who's also an MD, um, who I was trading text messages with today, as a matter of fact. Um, and he was like, how you feeling today, two days later? And I said... I'm still really, really sore. I said, I don't think I've ever been this sore from marathon. Um, this is the most beaten up I've felt two days later. I mean, I've always felt beaten up after a marathon, but I've never been this sore two days later after a marathon. Um, I don't think. Um, I, if I have been, I don't remember it. I'm sure I have been in the past, but not this bad. Um, I'm still struggling to go up and down stairs. Um, and he said um, that there were probably so much, so much inflammation floating around in my body as a result of my fighting off that illness that then I go and run a race and and I inflame my body even more um, that that's in part why it was so tough on my legs and the reason why I'm so sore and I've had such a hard time recovering from it um, I think that's interesting um, and it's not something I ever really thought I hadn't thought about it from an inflammatory place um, that the inflammation in my system as a result of fighting off a sickness could be something that that could affect my legs. Um, I did think about it in terms of, well, my body was really tired from having fought off an illness all week long, but I didn't think about it strictly in terms of inflammation. And so I thought that was interesting for him to mention. Um, and then I, I, I kind of said, you know, it's funny you say that. I fell in, on Wednesday and skinned my knee before the race, and it's super infected now. My knee is really badly infected at this point. It's disgusting. Um, and I said, is that related to it? And he said, oh, yeah, totally. He said, are you on taking any antibiotics? And I said, no. As a matter of fact, I'm the only person in my family right now who's not on antibiotics. Um, and he said, you might think about it. <laughs> he said, if, if your knee continues to be really infected here, you might need to get on some antibiotics here over the course of the next couple of days. Um, and so we'll see how my knee looks tomorrow. And if it's still super inflamed, if I'm still feeling as sore tomorrow as I am today, then um, maybe, maybe that's it. And so I do think that, 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 that potentially was, was part of, of, of why I broke down a little bit there in the last part of the race, um, the back half of the race. Um, the second possibility, um, and these are not watertight compartments. Maybe they, they shouldn't be considered, um, in isolation. I think maybe it was part of all of these things. The second thing was my actual hamstring issue. Now, as I mentioned, the first thing that forced me to slow down was not some problem in my system and not the fact that my legs were tightening or anything else like that. It was one specific issue and it was in my right hamstring. And it was a particular issue that's been bothering me over the course of the last seven or eight weeks. Um, and I think my hips are just really sore and they're, they're tilted in such a way right now, even though I, I do get chiropractic care and, and massage therapy, that, that it's just tugging on that right hamstring in a way that's that's overworking it. Um, and I had to slow down for the first time in the race because I was worried about that hamstring seizing. And I wonder if when I slowed down and changed my gait a little bit in order to keep that hamstring from seizing, if perhaps I started striding more inefficiently in general. If I started like compensating for it in a way that made me uh, come down harder, basically, and start absorbing more impact into my quads, uh, specifically. Because it's my quads that really, 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 by the end, felt like they had been hit by sledgehammers. And today, two days later, you know, my, my shins, my calves, those aren't sore. My hamstring on my left side, it's not sore. The hamstring on my right that nearly seized, it's sore. But then my quads are what are still just painfully, painfully sore today, um, more than 48 hours after the race is over. Um, so, yeah, that's that's 
Um, that's part of it as well. Is I, I, I wonder if I compensated and changed my gait to something really inefficient and something very ugly um, there in the, the, the back part of the race because I was subconsciously protecting that hamstring. Um, I think that's possible as well. Um, the third thing to consider, of course, is was there some sort of problem in my training? Um, and I, I am inclined to think that there wasn't because I look at my training and I know that I was fit and I know that I had done some really good workouts, but there were some differences in my training. Um, I had run basically the same total number of miles, um, but I had done v- fewer really long runs, um, just very easy long runs, um, and I had done more really long workouts, um, more like marathon pace workouts, and I had done that three by six mile workout with Lori and with Morgan, um, and, and so I had done more like long workouts, but fewer long runs, um, runs of two and a half hours or more, um, and I had done really few fewer of what I would call stiff-legged runs, um, Leading up to Flying Pig, I had two different occasions over the course of the last 12 weeks before that race where I ran a very far distance, around 30 miles basically, and I finished it kind of fast in which I was trying to push the pace in in with really stiff legs. The first one was in a 50K trail race, and it finished on the road, and I was trying to catch the guy in front of me, and nearly did, um, and ended up finishing fourth. The second one was in a 10 by 5K, where we started a 5K run every every hour on the top of the hour for 10 hours. Um, And so by the time you got to that last 5K, I basically ran all of them at about marathon pace. And by the time I got to that last 10K or that last 5K, trying to run that at that same pace was really, 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 really difficult because my legs were so stiff and my system was so tired. And so I didn't have any of those kind of really long workouts like that or race efforts like that um and i wonder if that was it i did a little bit less strength work um i have done crossfit more often um but i had been doing one crossfit session and one additional strength session um pretty consistently and then i got to now where i pretty much only do strength if i go to crossfit and i only go to crossfit most weeks one time a week Every now and then I'll go two times a week, but but um, I mostly only go one time a week. And so a little bit less strength training, maybe that did it. Um, and then the one that kind of I'm most interested in is I actually did less cycling total. Um, I My total training time was a little bit lower this time around. I did these longer running workouts, and I did some harder running workouts, um, but my total time was lower because I didn't ride my bike as much. And so I didn't do as much cross training. And so that makes me wonder if I was lacking in the overall fitness department too. Um, so these are all things I think for me to consider and, and to think more about over the course of the next little while. Um, I think that, that whenever I kind of look back at a race and try and figure out, okay, well, why didn't it go quite the way I want it to go? You, you always kind of want to go with the, with the, the easy one. Um, and the one that, that probably makes you feel the best and the one that doesn't require the most change in your activities. And so I want to be like, oh, it's because I was sick, period, done. If I hadn't been sick, I would have done great. And, and I don't think that that's really entirely accurate. Um, I think that was part of it, for sure. Um, and, and I think what my training partner Drew said about uh, the anti-inflammatories you know, in my body or the inflammation in my body, and that's one of the reasons why I'm still carrying so much soreness now and the reason why my knee is still so infected now. Um, the wound on my knee is so infected. I think that's very interesting. It's something I hadn't considered. So I'm, you know, score one for having training partners that are intelligent. Um, but I, I do think it's it's probably some combination of all three of those things, and and some stuff that I can certainly address um, in my next big marathon training block, which will be ahead of the Berlin Marathon this fall, which I look forward to. So. That does it for this race report on the Los Angeles Marathon. Uh, This is a long wrap-up here, but there certainly was a lot to say, and it was only me doing it, so I hope you didn't get too tired of hearing my voice. But hopefully there were things in here that that were worthwhile to you, whether you're planning to run the Los Angeles Marathon or not. I do recommend it for you. Um, And if you have any questions, be sure to reach out to me on the Facebook page, on Instagram, on Twitter, or via email. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time on the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast.
That'll do it for another edition of the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast brought to you by ITL Coaching and Performance, Blue Pineapple Travel, and Slayer X. Don't forget to reach out to us on Facebook, facebook.com slash pleasantpodcast. Reach out to us on Twitter, at pleasantpodcast. We're on Instagram now, at mostpleasantexhaustion. And you can download us on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, on Apple Podcasts, or on Spotify. Don't forget to reach out to our sponsors as well. ITL Coaching and Performance can be found at itlcoaching.com, at itlcoaching on Twitter, facebook.com slash performance, and on Instagram, itlcoaching. Blue Pineapple Travel can be found at bluepineappletravel.com, at facebook.com slash bluepineappletravel, or on Instagram, bluepineappletravel. And SlayerX can be found at SlayerX.com, at Facebook.com slash here for SlayerX. That's the number four, here for SlayerX. On Twitter, at official SlayerX. And on Instagram, here for SlayerX. Don't forget to use the pleasant 2019 discount code for 10% off anything at their website. On behalf of Michelle Frank and Patrick Ollinger, this is George Darden. We appreciate your listening to the Most Pleasant Exhaustion Podcast.